They're all changes that we will face, changes that marriage brings, that children brings, that age brings, maturity. Well, what would it really take for us to change, not merely our minds, but to change what we really believe deep down, to bring radical change? So few times do we see someone who is an adult radically change their view on something. It's really rare. Especially for, even when we we see a politician who will change their position on something, isn't there a part of you that thinks, what's the political expediency in this change? Do they really believe something different? Or is it now they just know that if they continue want to have the, the approval of whatever constituency they're looking for, they have to now say certain things. What does it take to really change someone deep down? A lot of times it seems impossible. The older someone is, the more fixed they are in their patterns and their beliefs. Perhaps even the more influential and powerful they are, it becomes almost impossible for us to conceive that that person would change. And what we have in Daniel 4 is the record, and not, not... It is Daniel recording this. He's putting it into his book that he is sending back to the, with, uh, to the nation of Israel who are in exile and those exiles who are returning by this point back to the promised land. But this is the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar's own words included in this chapter. And he himself talks about the change that he himself has endured. And back in chapter 3, when he is about to send those three friends of Daniel into the fiery furnace, he asks a question, what God of yours can deliver you out of my hand? He was a man. He was absolutely in control of everything. He had it all. He was convinced of his own prestige, of his own power, And yet what we saw last week is that he was a new man. Verses 1 to 3 lays that out. He has a new song. First three verses, chapter 4 is fascinating. It begins with kind of an introduction and then a song, and then it closes with an introduction and a song. And then in between, you have this historical account, this letter that Nebuchadnezzar has sent out. And verses 4 to 18, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking in the first person. You'll find first-person pronouns used throughout. I, me, my. This is what happened to me at this section. I did this, and then I saw this. In verses 19 to 33, if my memory serves me correct, then you have him recording what other people do. Everything is in the third person. He did that. They did this. Then this happened, and they saw it. Verses 4 to 18... It's kind of its own mini section here. And when we find verses 1 to 3, it gives us this new song of a changed man. And the question we want to ask is, what would change him? To all peoples, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good. Remember last week, I thought it good. It seemed good to me. It seemed pleasing to me. You might look at that and translate it. It seemed beautiful to me. And if you know anything about 
ancient Babylonian culture, you know that the arts were a massive part of their culture. We still, you can find in museums all around the world today, artifacts of Babylonian culture preserved for us. They are beautiful. They are marvelous. I thought it beautiful. It seemed good to me. What seemed beautiful? What seemed good to you, Nebuchadnezzar? To declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked. And the most important part of this was, has not just worked, but worked for me. And then he sings, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. What would bring about such a radical change in this man? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is not a good man. He's not a godly guy. He was wicked. He was evil. We need to know what would bring about a change in King Nebuchadnezzar because we, this passage is important because we live in a world of kings or a world of would-be kings. Not a world of kings over the world, but a world in which people consider themselves to be the kings and queens over their own world. Where we are trying to rule our lives in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over all things under his empire, under his control. We want to be our own kings, our own queens, our own gods. We live in a world that puts us at the center. Our desires, our thoughts, our feelings. We are supreme. Do whatever you want, follow your heart. Make yourself happy. Put yourself first. And with so much technology in our lives, we feel like we can become omnipotent. We can become the masters of our fate, the captains of our soul. We can feel with technology that we we may not know everything, but with Google, we kind of know everything. There's an app for that. There's an instructional video if we don't know how to do something. We can figure it out. We can feel infallible. There's a million websites that we can go to to find whatever truth we're looking for. And if we're young or relatively healthy, we can feel that the world is at our fingertips. And we can do whatever we like. And Nebuchadnezzar here, at the end of his reign, is finding out that all of that is not true. He is declaring to us that there is a new king on his throne. And he is singing that king's praises. Something radical has changed. Think of, in your mind, who is the worst person in the world at this moment. Who would surprise you most if they were to make a public announcement or to call you up and tell you that now they have put their faith in Christ and they're going to follow him? Maybe maybe it's some Hollywood star. Maybe it's a political representative. Maybe it's a spouse, a parent, a child, a grandchild, a friend. What brings change? What would change him 
we see what begins this process of change is the introduction of a problem. The problem he faces, verses 4, follow along with verses 4 to 7. We see in verse 4, he's got a good life. He's living a good life. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. That is peace and prosperity. Rest and flourishing, peace, prosperity. That's what he's experiencing at this moment. This is the good year. The events of this chapter, make no mistake, they're about 30 years after chapter 3, all right? So, which means Daniel is about in his late 40s to early 50s, which I am banking on that that's the prime of life, okay? I'm living for, in that reality. I got the prime of life ahead of me still. But 40s, 50s, somewhere in there, that's, that's where Daniel's at. That's how old he is at this moment, but by this point, part of what we know in, from historical sources and partly what we know from this passage is that life is good. There's peace and prosperity. Verse 30 gives us the indication that all of the massive building projects that Nebuchadnezzar had set out to accomplish, they are done by this point. We know from historical sources that he had relatively recently to this point, he had conquered Egypt. Egypt had, had kind of risen up against it and he had gone out and his armies had decimated the, the Egyptian armies and so that there was now no contender against him. He was really peace and prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar is older. He is ready now to kick up his feet in retirement, to enjoy the good life at the end of things and a problem comes. We find that in verse Five. He's in his house, peace and prosperity. Verse five. I saw, I saw a dream which made me afraid, terrified. And the thoughts in my and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. You'll remember chapter 2, he wants to test these guys, and so he, was, he says, you need to tell me both the dream and the interpretation. Here, he says, just give me the interpretation. I'll tell you the dream. So what is this dream? You can look ahead, verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. There was this massive tree, and the tree grew and became strong. Its its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. This is a massive cosmic tree. Its leaves were beautiful. They were lovely. Its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So you have this beautiful tree, this amazing tree, this prosperous tree, huge, massive, seen to the ends of the earth. Its reach is to the heavens up into the clouds. Its reach is to the ends of the horizons. All animals are basking under it, finding shade and rest under it, finding food, prosperity from it. And then he goes from seeing to hearing. In fact, this is one of the things that it'll come up later as we walk through Daniel. 
This is a pattern you will find in this type of literature. It comes in Daniel. It comes again in other prophets in the Old Testament. It comes again in the the book of Revelation where John will see something and then an angel will come and explain things. He hears something. And you have that pattern here. He sees and then hears. And he hears a watcher. It is a messenger from the heavens. We would see this as an angel. And that's how it would have been understood by the Jewish people as they were reading this. Verses 13. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth. Bind them with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And now we have a change in pronouns. You'll you'll notice, all right, this isn't gender confusion. This is merely we're moving from it to him. It goes from let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. The mixing of the metaphors is important here. These are images that are being conveyed. These are images that you and I are supposed to see. The watcher, the angel comes down and we'll, we'll dig into this more next week when Daniel gives his interpretation. But the angel is coming down and he cries out, cut down this tree. Strip the branches. Those beautiful, attractive leaves, lovely leaves, let them fall away. Let them be scattered. Let the fruit be scattered. Let all the animals that have found a nest and home here, let them, let them too be scattered. And the purpose of all this we find in verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, And the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. The purpose, as we saw last week, where God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion is from generation to generation, here in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of men, giving it to whomever he wills, setting it over the lowest of men. And in this context, it makes sense why in verses 5 to 7, Nebuchadnezzar is so troubled, calling all of his magicians, all of his soothsayers, all of his astrologers to come in and explain this dream to him. There's something ominous here. Before, you remember in chapter 2, he has this dream of that golden image. But the good news there, I'm sorry, the news there is good. You're going to be a great kingdom. In fact, the other empires that come after you, they're going to be of lesser material, lesser glory. But here he is troubled. And maybe his response doesn't make that much sense to you. I mean... If most of you had a bad dream, you wake up in the middle of the night, most of you, I hope, just kind of shake it off, turn over, go back to sleep. Maybe if it's a really bad dream, maybe, if you're married, 
you wake up your spouse, right? But it better be really bad. The only ones who were okay with having a bad dream and waking us up in the middle of the night are small children, right? You better have a good excuse or you better be a young child. Here's a grown man. Has a bad dream. Wakes up. First thing, he calls all of his spiritual advisors to come and help him out. This would be like your boss having a bad dream and then demanding, calling everybody and getting on a Zoom call and demanding that you guys help him out and figure out what this is. This would be unacceptable in today's world. It would be crazy. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He is trying to figure out what is happening. And part of the reason is that in the ancient world, it was believed that certain dreams, and those dreams that certain dreams would have been messages from their gods, would have been messages from the heavens. And that those messages, uh, these dreams, carried divine messages of, of what was coming, either judgment or blessing, but it came with warnings. It came with necessary things that this person had to do to succeed, or else there would be massive failure, or else there would be judgment. Here, there's this feeling of ominous judgment coming, this glorious tree, but it's cut down, stripped of its glory for a period of seven times, seven seasons. He knows something is up. He knows that this dream must mean something. And he can't figure out what it is. This would be like you, students, getting... uh, told by your teacher that you have a major test or project due in the next few days. She sends the email to you with all of the instructions in the attachment and you can't open it. Or a boss doing the same to you. You're working and he sends an email to you. This is what is necessary for you. If you do not do the things in this attachment, you will lose your job. You will not be successful. Well, here's a terminal diagnosis. The answer, the prescription for it is in the attachment. You just got to open it up and it'll have all the answers that you need. When you go to click on the attachment, it's all garbled. It doesn't make sense. Like you need this? Not only for, you need this for school. You need this for your job. You need this to live? So what do you do? You know, maybe, maybe you call the most IT, like, technical person in your family. Come and help me with this, right? Can you, I can't figure out what's going on. This email, it's got an attachment. I have no idea. It's important. I gotta know what's going on. They can't help you, so you call someone else. You start, you start calling anybody you know. Can you help me figure this out? I've done everything. I've hit my computer. I breathed in this fan thing. I'm like, I'm talking to it. I'm encouraged. I don't know what else to do. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He is panicking here. He has been given a message from the Lord, and he is calling, in essence, he is calling all of his spiritual IT people to come help him. And no one, no one can interpret it. Either they, they cannot or they will not. It's, not. it's not absolutely clear what it is. It might have been they knew it was bad news, and there was a strong pattern in which you, the bringer of bad news, you don't get ahead, you lose your head. And so it may have been, "Mm, we'll leave this for someone else. 
We don't know. Okay, it could have been that. Or it could have been they, they could not do it. Here it is, a message from the gods Nebuchadnezzar truly, rene- truly needs, and he can't get it. He's not overreacting at all. In fact, he is acting appropriately with the appropriate level of panic. He needs answers. He needs an answer. He needs the answer. And the answer comes in a person, in the form of a person. Not, the answer is not Alan Iverson. The answer is Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar calls on Daniel. And it's not clear why Daniel isn't included when all the other people come. I wonder if the way Daniel lived his life, this is pure speculation, but I wonder if the way Daniel lived his life, even while he was respected and valued for his gifts, it made him, it distanced him a little. Either way, the very end, they call on Daniel. Verse 8. But alas, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. Or here in the New King James, it says spirit of the holy God. Any other translation, including those of you who have the King James, you'll notice it doesn't say the spirit of the holy God, but it has the spirit of the holy gods. It is At this point, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar is talking about merely this idea that the gods, his gods, Gods, in general, speak to Daniel. And he goes on, he says, And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And then he goes on and he explains it to Daniel. And I just want you to notice right here the way Daniel is described. You can see this same description. Maybe you'll pick up on it in verse 18. He's described him twice already in verses 8 and 9. and does it a third time. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Daniel is the right man for the job. The spirit of the holy gods is in him. It, it describes first two realities. One is that Daniel, Daniel has special access to the heavens. Daniel, unlike the other, other, other wise men, Chaldeans, soothsayers, astrologers, he has actual access to be able to speak to God. And God speaks to him. In the ancient world, from records that we have, that we have recovered from archaeology, there were a variety of methods that were used to try to figure out what dreams meant, particular dreams that were indicated or believed to be messages from the gods. There were several different methods that would be used to try to uncover their meaning. When all of those methods wouldn't work, the final one was that they would go to the gods themselves. That was risky. It was hard. And not always reliable. It was the last measure. And Daniel is the one who has that access to the gods. And so he is called on because he alone has and has shown himself able to do just that. To not only speak to the gods, but to have God speak to him. 
But secondly, you'll notice, it's not just that Daniel, the spirit of the gods, the spirit of God is within him, but the spirit of the holy God. How does Nebuchadnezzar know that Daniel's God is holy? Um, Perhaps Daniel has been able to, to describe to Nebuchadnezzar at some point the difference between his God and the gods that were worshipped in Babylon, perhaps. But my guess is that Nebuchadnezzar had seen the way Daniel had lived his life. Nebuchadnezzar had lots of servants who followed their gods and were impure and unholy and unrighteous. What he needed was one who was pure. What he needed was one who was holy. And he knew Daniel's God must be holy because Daniel served him and Daniel was holy. Daniel was devoted to his God. In the last 30 years, think about that, 30 plus years Daniel has now been in Babylon. We tend to think of Miracles in, in the Old Testament in Daniel's life just being like every day happening all over, the top, all over the place. Because it's one chapter after the next. But the reality is decades fill in the gaps. We're in the fourth chapter. This is just three events, four events in the life of Daniel. And he has lived... Every day, not just these special events, but every day he has lived before the king in a certain way, following after his God. Daniel and his holiness is part of what has made him reliable. It has separated him from the rest of the astrologers and the soothsayers and the Chaldeans for certain, but it is also what has made him distinct. Daniel has shown that he is set up now to be the perfect witness. Daniel here is the perfect witness. That's what Nebuchadnezzar needed. He needed someone who would be able to declare to him what this message from God, the gods, was. And Daniel is able to say it comes from God. And to declare what that message is. Because of his wisdom, because of his holiness, his access to God, his unique ability to testify of God's glory and grace, Daniel is the perfect witness to Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, we read these words. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel is that wise man. Daniel is that wise witness. God had put Daniel, he had put him in this situation decades earlier, caused him to endure so much heartache, given him this position decades earlier in chapter 2 when he interprets the dream and he's given an exalted position in the nation of Babylon given prestige and respect as he has abilities that no one else does. He has access to the gods that no one else has. He has wisdom that no one else is capable of showing and displaying. 
Daniel is this perfect witness. Daniel Daniel is what Israel was to have been. They had been positioned by God that through their laws, they were to show themselves wise and through their laws of God, show themselves holy so that the nations would see and come and believe. That's why God rescues them back in Exodus. He tells again and again and again why he is rescuing them. It's so that Pharaoh may know and Egypt may know and Israel may know and that the whole world may know who the true God is. But Israel had failed. Again and again and again, despite the prophets that were sent to it, the warnings that were given to it, they rebelled against God again and again. And so they are judged and so they are exiled, conquered, defeated, and their people scattered. Because they had failed to be the witness that God had called them to be. And Daniel writes this. This book of Daniel is written to those exiles and those exiles who are returning to Israel to rebuild. To remind them of what God calls them to be. And by his example, Daniel points us to Jesus, doesn't he? Who is the ultimate witness. He's the ultimate wise man. Paul writes in the book of Colossians that it is in Christ who is in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. John, in the Gospel of John, we see again and again that all that dwells with the Father, uh, sorry, Christ dwells with the Father, the Son is with the Father, and the Father with the Son. And all that the Father says, the Son does, and all that the Father tells him to declare, he says, Christ will say, he is doing all and only that which his Father has commanded him, and all that which his Father does. He is the light that has come into the world. And the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own people received him not. And in his death and in his resurrection, Christ puts the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and the love of God and the justice of God, he puts it on display. Whatever, whatever capacity Daniel acts as the perfect witness He points us to the ultimate witness, the Son of God. Friends, I'd encourage you this morning, look to him. Look not to Daniel, but to Jesus. Because you and I, it's not merely that you and I have problems in this life that we that God in Christ will come along with and he'll he'll act like a good crutch and come alongside and help us through that that's not what is happening here at all this is a life and death situation and you and I have a life and death situation with God it's not merely that you we have problems with God it's that God has a problem with us our sin has separated us from him our sin deserves his judgment King David, who is described as being a man after God's own heart, he, is, he commits adultery, has the, the husband of the woman he commits adultery with, has him killed. And as he repents, finally repents, he confesses his sin to God. 
And he's able to say against you and you only have I sinned. What he is doing there is recognizing that while he has sinned against others, his supreme sin, the, the, the one whom he has sinned against supremely is God himself. And that's whom you and I sin against. Kids, when you disobey your parents, you are not only disobeying your parents, you are disobeying who? God. When we complain, it is not merely complaining about the situation we are put in or our circumstances. We are complaining about what? We're complaining against God himself. And all of our sin, it is not just against another person. It is not even supremely, chiefly against ourselves. It is chiefly, first and foremost, against God. And it is against him. Because it is against him, something must happen. We want justice in the world. And unfortunately, we deserve God's justice. What he has done in Christ is that Christ has borne the justice of God so that we who trust in him may find forgiveness, may be brought into a right standing with God, may have God's favor, his smile, his joy over us. Oh, friend, look to that Savior. Look to that one who comes and testifies, not of himself, but of the Father and of his love. Both with his lips and his life, Christ shows us how we may draw near to God. More than that, friends, you and I live in a world of would-be kings and queens, a world where everyone wants to increase their personal footprint, their influence, the number of those who approve of them, who follow them. Every single one of us wants more control. Every single one of us. The thing that frustrates us the most is when people do not act according to what we would like them to do. When situations go outside of what we would, what we would like, what we had planned. We are looking for peace and prosperity and we have the gall to think that we can bring it about. We are part of this world. We are one of those people. And part of the purposes of God in our trials is that we would look to him. Verse, like that we would come to know in verse 17 that the most high is the one who rules over the affairs of men. He gives it to whomever he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And we are called in this world, we are called to be witnesses. To be those men and women in whom is the spirit of the holy God. So that when we go to work, when we're at home, wherever we're at, we are testifying of Christ. As, read, as was read earlier, that we so honor the Lord always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Which means we need to live in such a way that shows that we have hope. And that we need to be prepared to make a defense. That we, we need to be prepared to be able to articulate what it is we are hoping in and how others may share in that. 
So brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Daniel was, we are to be witnesses of the glory and grace of God in Christ as a troubled world, to a troubled world. We are to testify to be witnesses to the ultimate witness, Christ himself, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior. And so like Daniel, we must be patient. 30 plus years he is waiting. We must be opportunistic looking for those opportunities in which we may speak. We must watch our lives. People will know what our God is by the way we live our lives, which is is an astonishingly humble reality. And so when you sin, and you will sin, whether at work or at home, with friends and family. Be quick to take ownership of it, take responsibility for it. Quick to apologize, show humility, gospel humility. Guard yourself from complaining, joining everyone else in, joining everyone else in complaining, joining everyone else in doing what they do and the sins that are acceptable. Your life is to be different. What we do on a Friday night is to be different. When we do sin, look to the Lord. And finally, know the gospel. Daniel is able to give an account for what's happening. He's he's been prepared by that, by the Lord to do this. You and I must be witnesses who are able and ready to give an account. Know what it is you believe. The gospel, pure and simple. There is God. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. We have sinned against him. And yet he in his grace has sent his son into the world to redeem sinners. And he does this by dying in the place of sinners himself. By bearing our curse, our sin. So that all we like sheep, though we have gone astray. We may find in Christ, all of our sin has been put on his account. And he has been wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the discipline of our peace was on him. Be ready to give an account. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy, O Lord, on us. I pray that you will help us, that you will come alongside us and strengthen us to better testify of the grace that is found only in Christ and through Christ. You have mercifully atoned for our sin in him. We deserve judgment And judgment has been meted out, but not on us. So we may cry out with the Apostle Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, let us live in reality of this and strengthen us to testify more clearly to it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.